I do hope you have your Bibles with you. Get them open if you would. You have to be in the Bible. It is the living and active Word of God. Let's get them out. Matthew chapter 5. Every time you come to Cornerstone, you are going to hear the Word of God preached. And unless it is a unique sermon that will handle it topically, you will always hear it preached expositionally. And we want to be a Bible-centered church more than a Bible-based church. There is a difference. And you know that if you've been to a lot of churches, a Bible-based preacher has the Bible open, gives a nod to the Bible, but his sermon is about other things. His sermon goes around the text rather than coming out of the text. What we want to try to be is a Bible-centered church with Bible-centered preaching. And so that's your opportunity to hold us accountable, and I hope you do that. And we've had, I've had people, when I preached, that have written me emails or come up to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm not really sure I agree with that. I'm not really sure that is exactly what that text is saying, and I really appreciate that. We want to hold each other accountable. That tells me you're going back into the Word of God. You're checking what God says yourself. You're not being a sheep, a mindless sheep that says, well, whatever Pastor Tim says is always right. No, I am so capable of error. You have to have discernment. You have to know the Word of God. So chapter 5 of Matthew. And while we're getting our minds ready, you've had a busy week, I'm sure, and while we're getting our minds to really dial in, to really focus in, let me talk to you about the Roman Greco world, the Greek and Roman world at the time of Christ. Mercy was considered now listen you have to hear this part because this is going to really be the launching pad for the entire message mercy was considered the least of all virtues in fact to the roman people mercy was not even a virtue they called mercy the disease of the soul now let that percolate in your mind for a second they viewed mercy as a supreme weakness it was the least desired of all virtues if it was a virtue. You see, the Romans glorified courage. They glorified strict justice and power. They vehemently despised mercy. So let me give you a little backstory of how that is evident. In Roman law, fathers had absolute power over their family. A newborn baby was brought to the father, usually laid at his feet. And this is true. Go back and do your research. You can find this. It's all over the internet. And if the father wanted to keep the baby, he would put a thumb up. If he didn't want the baby, he would put a thumb down. And if his thumb, thumb turned down, the child, the baby was rejected. And babies with deformities, babies with handicaps, almost always received the thumb down. And what happened to that baby was this, two possibilities. They were taken even, either to the Roman forum and left on the steps, just abandoned, or they were immediately taken out, this is shocking, to the nearest water source and drowned. I'm not making this up. This is Greco-Roman world at the time of Christ. In fact, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, once wrote, and I'm quoting, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be raised or shall live. See, they were burdened 
they were a burden. They viewed them as a burden. Unwanted children were routinely picked up from the steps of those Roman forums, and they were trained for the brothel. That's the sex trade. Or worse, they were deliberately maimed and then used by professional beggars to draw sympathy and extract money from crowds passing by. This is all of what was happening in the Roman world at the time of Christ. See, the children were the exposed. They were the vulnerable in the Greco-Roman world, and not much truly has changed in our day. As abortion clinics dispose of unwanted children, it is a multi, multi, multi-million dollar industry, abortion. Or young children are sold, even today, into the sex industry. They're made slaves. All over the world, and America is not excluded. See, the world strips away mercy. And if Satan is allowed free reign, this world will be utterly brutal. Now, that's the Roman Greco world. Let's take a quick look into the Jewish world at the time of Christ. That was also merciless especially to the Gentile, especially to the Jew who was caught in terrible sin. You see, the rabbis had a saying, it went like this, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That was by a very famous rabbi right before Jesus was born. The Orthodox Jewish belief at the time of Christ forbade the helping of a Gentile mother who was giving birth. They believed that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now listen, in Jewish synagogues, that was being preached. Gentiles, fuel, created by God to burn the flames of hell. It was unlawful to give medical attention to a renegade Jew or a Gentile, but to a, to a Jewish person who turned away from Judaism, the system of Jewish religion, it was illegal to give medical attention to them. Let me bring you forward to not too long ago, a book that I read that profoundly impacted me, 12 Years a Slave, the true story of Solomon Northup, way, way better the book was than the movie. At one point, Solomon Northup was sold to a new master. He was a black man. He was sold to a new master who liked to gather all of his slaves on the Sabbath and preach to them. And his master one time, Solomon wrote, came to Luke chapter 12, verse 47, which says this, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. So the master takes all of his slaves and he explains to them why they must obey him. And if they didn't, God wanted them beaten with, and I'm quoting, 40 or 100 or 150 lashes. That was the preaching that this master was giving to his slaves not too long ago. See, this false preacher's message was merciless and was Christless. Yet it's hardly been unique in human history. Now, I gave you three backdrops. The Roman Greco world, the Jewish world, and not too distant past in America. And I want you to see that when Jesus spoke what we're about to study, 
it exploded. That's the backdrop. That mercilessness, the merciless world is the backdrop for the merciful people of God. And they shine like stars in the blackest of night. And here's what Jesus said. And let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now let me at least get us all on the same level thought for a moment. If you're a Jewish person on the side of that slope, listening to Jesus say these words, even though mercy is all through the Old Testament scriptures, even though virtually every Jewish person there, men and women, had studied in Bet Sefer from age 6 to 10, all about the Jewish law, particularly the first five books, which is all about the mercy of God, even though they knew all about the mercy of God, they were living in a climate which had extinguished it. The Pharisees and the scribes had so narrowed the law that if you did not keep it fully, you received anything but mercy. You received condemnation. This is the world that the, the majority of those people on that slope is experiencing. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, this is the fifth statement of blessing in the Sermon on the Mount, and what we're calling the Beatitudes, and Jesus is aiming at our hearts. Now, this is a little bit of the part, I haven't gotten into the fun part yet of what really mercy is, what it looks like, the power of mercy. We're going to get all into that in a moment. This is the part where we kind of drift. It's sort of like the car's idling. I'll pay attention when it's in gear. It's in gear now. You ready? So you've got to listen to this. I'm putting it in gear. We're starting to go forward. You've got to understand what's happened to get us to this point. The gospel aims at the heart. Now listen, that's gospel-centered preaching. Anything that aims at behavior is moralism. If you're reading a Christian book and it's just telling you what you ought to be living like and how you ought not to be living, that's moralism that is putting a ton of weight on your shoulders, driving you into despair. You've got to get the gospel. The gospel tells you how you ought to live because this is the way Jesus lived and how he's helping you to live because he's changing your heart. That's gospel preaching. The gospel aims at the heart to change who we are before it changes what we do. You must be different if you're going to live different. And the gospel is all about the transformation of the heart. So the Beatitudes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen them like this. The Beatitudes show us exactly, precisely, beautifully what the heart of Jesus looks like. Now listen, if you don't listen to anything else I'm going to tell you today, then at least get this. The Beatitudes show you exactly the way Jesus, his heart works. You're going to see his heart. And you're going to see in the rest of the sermon how that heart promoted and provoked and created righteous living in the Son of God. Jesus lives out of his heart. You and I live out of our hearts. The words that we speak, Jesus said, they're coming from your heart, what's stored up within there. The actions that we do, everything 
finds its anchorage in the heart. So the gospel is all about changing the heart so that we can live in a way that pleases Jesus. So these beatitudes show us the heart of Jesus. Now, you ready? They also show you what Jesus is doing in your heart. That's what they're for. These first three are going to drive you into despair. You'll have a turning point in the, la- the next one, the fourth one, and then all of a sudden, you're going to start seeing, okay, this is why the first three occur. This is what it's for. This is what it's producing in my life. This is the kind of heart change that I should be experiencing because this is the aim of Jesus. So in verse 3, our eyes were open to our spiritual poverty. Our self-righteousness is decimated. Now listen, I don't think, if you were here a few weeks ago when I preached on this, if you walked out of here going, man, that was a great sermon. That felt so good. You didn't get the sermon. You weren't supposed to walk out of here like that. You're supposed to walk out of here reduced, emptied, not full of self-righteousness, not full of self-reliance, not full of self-confidence, full of God. This is what you're doing in me. You are emptying me of me. Well, it continued, it got even worse. The second one, that our hearts would mourn over our sin. Now we can see our spiritual poverty and the response in us is grief. Our self-confidence is ruined. Spiritual poverty ruins your self-righteousness. Mourning over your sin ruins your self-confidence. And then week three, it dropped us down to another level. We learn the truth of the wonder of meekness. It's okay that we're on our knees before the Lord. It's okay that we don't have a lot of power in and of ourselves. It's okay that all of our power comes from the God who lives in us. That's meekness. The ruin of our self-reliance. This is the process, friends, of sanctification. It's how we become like Jesus. It's the aim of all Christian discipleship. Let me just say this really quickly. If you're meeting with somebody and you're helping them grow in their faith, you're helping them ultimately become more like Christ. That's the aim of all Christian discipleship, to help somebody become more like Christ. And if you're working with somebody and you're, and you're coming alongside somebody and you're filling them with self-confidence and self-reliance and self-righteousness, you're actually working in complete opposite of what the gospel is doing. It's okay to tell people, listen, you have no self-righteousness. You have all of Christ, but you have none of your own. So don't have any confidence in yourself. Don't have any reliance on your own ability to walk this Christian life. You have none. You have no power to do it. And if your flesh takes over the spirit of God, they're at war. But if you give in to your flesh, you're going to be filled with the idea that, you know what? I can do this on my own. I don't need God. And it's going to bring you to the precipice of ruin. Where back down in spiritual poverty, the gospel will take you mourning over your sin again, discovering once again, you've got all the power, but it's God's, and he puts it in you. That's meekness, the surrender of self-control. And then all of a sudden, verse 6, it takes a turn, and we see the new desires that come into a self-emptied heart. When the heart is emptied of itself by the power of the gospel, flooding into the... By the way, you all know this, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. So does it the Spirit of God. 
And so when he reduces us, when he empties us of ourselves, the vacuum that that creates will be immediately poured and filled overflowingly by the Spirit of God. And you will have new desires. You will thirst for things you did not thirst for before. You will not want to drink of things that you used to love to drink of because your desires are for righteousness, to be made right, to be made like Jesus. See, an insatiable desire for righteousness, to be filled with Christ, will produce an overarching desire to be like him. Now look with me, if you would, at the results of all of this work of spiritual poverty, mourning, and meekness, filling with righteousness. Look what the result of it is, that God would produce in us the next three Beatitudes, mercy, purity, and peace. Let's start with mercy, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're going to define it first, that's point number one. And then we're going to look at what it, the picture that Jesus gives in the Gospels of what mercy looks like. So mercy defined, not one of these Beatitudes, there's eight of them, not one of them are natural. What we're looking at cannot be duplicated and replicated in an unbeliever's heart. They can do merciful things, but they cannot be filled with mercy. This is qualitative difference that only the believer of Jesus and the disciple of Christ can experience. They're not natural dispositions. They're not personality types. Now listen, a merciful person doesn't mean an easygoing person. It's not a naturally kind person. It's not someone who hates conflict and wants to be done with it, so they sweep it under the rug. That's peace faking. We're going to look at that in a little while. But as you get near a definition of mercy, you got to know that it's a companion to grace. It's the sister of grace. But it's distinct from grace. And I'm going to bring out that distinction for you. You ready? Three times. Three times in Paul's, he wrote three pastoral epistles. And each one of them, he started them the same exact way. Look what he wrote. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. There is no peace without God's grace and mercy. That's why it's in that order. But here he distinguishes grace, mercy, and peace. Grace and mercy are not synonyms. They're distinctions. And you've got the popular definition. I'm sure you, you've heard of it. Maybe you've said it. You taught it. It goes like this. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. You've heard that, I'm sure. You probably have taught that to people. And while that definition is good in the, in, for the reason that it, it shows that grace nor mercy are merited, they're not earned, it really does not get to the root of what distinguishes grace from mercy. So let me get you to the root and let me teach you what they really are. Grace is this. It is God's loving willingness and power to forgive the sins of the guilty. Now listen, you've got to know this. Walk out of here today knowing what grace and mercy really are. Grace always targets sin. Grace always targets the removal of sin. Grace and sin are two sides of the equation. Mercy is different. Mercy is God's loving willingness and his power to relieve the misery 
that sin has brought into our lives, whether it's our own sins or the sins of others against us or the sins of living in a fallen world. His mercy aims at misery. Grace aims at sin. Mercy aims at misery. There are two sides of the gospel equation. There are two sides of the picture of what God is doing in every one of his children's lives. God extends grace to the guilty. He extends mercy to the miserable. So if you've got sin in your life, don't call out for mercy as much as call out for grace. And if you've got a sin-wrecked life, don't call out for grace. God's already given it to you, children of God. Call out for his mercy because now he's rebuilding your life. Now he's targeting the misery. So here's what mercy looks like in our lives. Mercy moves me to suspend my prejudice, my apathy, my perspective of a person. You suspend it. I'm not going to decide whether to help somebody based on their skin color or their ethnicity or their situation or how often they've hurt me. Mercy suspends all of that. Mercy moves me to help, to reach out, to love, to come alongside. Mercy moves me to forgive that person, to restore that relationship if it's possible. Mercy risks, it personally costs, it is unearned, it is blind to background. It is actionable, it moves, it is not selective based on danger, it's not selective based on situation. Now think of this as Christians, you and I have to formulate how do we handle the refugee crisis? Because this speaks to this. A lot of Christians that I'm reading about are saying, well, we can't allow a lot of people in this country because an Islamic terrorist is going to come in with them. You're not speaking mercy. You put your risk factor above the, the gospel. You want to speak mercy. You want to have the mind of Christ. Listen, it's always a risk to show mercy. That's why we have a sovereign God. A merciful person is one who sees someone in need, feels compassion, thinks wisely how to relieve the need, and then does what you can do to relieve it. That's what mercy does. And by the way, that's saturated from Genesis to Revelation, all over the Bible. So what's it look like? Let's go to point number two and see mercy pictured. I'm going to show you from Luke chapter 10, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It's called the Good Samaritan. But let me tell you a story before we see it. It's a true story. Years ago, two identical twin boys were born to a small town store owner. They were inseparably close, these twin brothers. And when their father died, they took over the business. And the store was busy, and one of the brothers, in making change for a customer, absentmindedly left a dollar bill on top of the cash register instead of in it. He was immediately called to the front of the store for a customer to wait on a customer. But, but as soon as he was done waiting, he remembered that he didn't put the dollar bill in the register, but on it. So he went back to the register, but the dollar bill was gone. So he asked his brother if he had seen it, but his brother said, no, I, I never saw that dollar bill. Now watch what happens. True story. 
An hour later, he comes back to the same brother, his twin brother, and he asks him again, but this time with a suspicious tone. And the accused brother became angry and defensive. And every single time they tried to discuss the matter, the conflict grew worse. The incredible outcome of this dollar bill, this conflict over a dollar bill, was that they dissolved their partnership. They installed a partition right down the middle of the store, and they began competing businesses all over that dollar bill. Where was mercy? Where was love? Where was the willingness to forgive? So we go to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to put the scripture on the screen, but if you go to Luke chapter 10, there's probably not a better picture of mercy than the story of the Good Samaritan. And you get to verse 30, Luke chapter 10. A man was going down. Jesus is explaining this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now here comes two of the best of Judaism. In fact, they represent the Jewish religion. First, a priest comes upon the beaten, half-dead man, sees him lying in the road, crosses over to the other side, and walks past him. It does nothing. And then all of a sudden, a Levite, who is a, an assistant to the priest, comes down the same road, does the same exact thing, sees the victim, crosses to the other side, and walks past and does nothing. But then comes a Samaritan in the story of Jesus, a Samaritan, a half-Jew. They were despised by the Jews. The Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. But this Samaritan walks down the road to Jericho, 21-mile stretch between the city of Jericho and Jerusalem, he sees this victim lying in his blood, half dead, and unlike the priest, unlike the Levite, he walks to the man, he sees it, he walks to the man. Look what, he, look what Jesus says, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wound, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That's what mercy looks like. Now, I'm going to define it. You ready? I've already defined it. Let me give you actionable, actionable de definition. It's when we see suffering or misery... Our heart responds with compassion. There should be a heart response. If you don't have a heart response, the gospel's not getting there. This is continually how Jesus responded. It's, a, it's an almost unpronounceable Greek word. It means that his bowels moved. To a Jewish person, the bowel was the very center of your being, the center of your gut. It's when you get kicked in the gut when you hear that somebody lost their job. Or you get sick to your stomach when you hear somebody died. 
That's this movement of felt compassion. That Samaritan got that kick in the gut. He saw the victim, got the kick in the guts, and then he did what was in his power to do. It, it cost him, and it will cost him in the future. It doesn't matter the risk. Mercy doesn't mind the risk. It doesn't consider the cost. It doesn't worry if it's a friend or a stranger or an enemy. Listen, mercy is never selective. If your mercy is selective, you don't have the gospel working in your heart. You're not like Jesus yet. Because mercy is not selective. It is not self-concerned. It is not limited. See, the Jewish religion, represented by the, the priest and the Levite, it had become mercilessly narrowed. They only showed kindness and mercy to fellow Jews who were in right standing. Did you hear that? It was only for fellow Jews and only if they're walking in the ways of Judaism. But Jesus, represented now by the Samaritan, loves everyone. He will show mercy to any who are in need. Now, Christian, the goal of this beatitude is to make us like Jesus. Amen? That we would be merciful. And we forfeit much when we are merciless. But what rewards we gain when we are merciful? Point number three, mercy rewarded. Mercy rewarded. We've, we've understood the definition. We've seen what it looks like from Luke 10. Now look at the second part of the beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now throughout church history, people have distorted this, by the way. I mean, whole churches and denominations have distorted this to mean that God will save you if you're merciful. But mercy is not something that you earn like a wage. It's not a wage. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It's the, by the way, the only thing the Bible says you earn is death from sin, severe beatings from rejecting Christ. That's what it says we earn. So if you want a paycheck, be careful when you're praying for God to be just if you're not a believer because if God's going to be utterly just with you, he's going to put you to hell. But instead, he poured all of his wrath on Jesus. The very moment you put your faith in him, God's justice, it must punish sin. But instead of punishing us for our sin, God poured out his wrath on his son for our sin. His son was caught up in this unwillingly. Jesus came to die. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. This is why he came to this earth. That's the gospel. God's justice must meet our sin. But instead of pouring it on us, those who put our faith in Jesus, he pours it on Jesus. And in its place, he gives us his righteousness. So that we are in right standing with him, adopted into his family, sealed into his favor forever and eternity, now walking with him as God lives in us. That's the gospel. But people throughout church history have said, no, if you show mercy, then God will save you. You can earn your salvation. That's not what Jesus means here. And if, by the way, if it was what Jesus meant, the entire gospel of Matthew crumbles 
the entire New Testament crumbles, and the entire Old Testament crumbles, and the entire redemptive history of all of God's people is for nothing. It's always been by faith that we are saved. It's a gift of grace. This is what Ephesians says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The gospel talks about gift language, not wage language. So instead, what I think Jesus means here, what I believe he means, are two things. Future mercy and present mercy. Let me give you the future one first. Our lives of mercy. Now listen, when we live merciful lives, it gives incontrovertible, irrefutable evidence that grace has changed us. Because you can't live mercifully, not like Jesus is talking about, if he has not yet aimed at your heart and changed you. You've got to be reduced in spiritual poverty. You've got to be mourning over your sin. You've got to be understanding meekness, thirsting for righteousness, and then you're able to be merciful. The non-believer cannot do this. It is proof if we live mercifully that God has done this work. So I cannot stress enough. If we are not merciful, now listen, I hope you hear this. Some of you, I think, need to hear this. I need to hear this. If we are not merciful, then we have not been made like Jesus. We're not saved. I know that's shocking to hear that. A lot of us are used to cheap grace, easy believism preaching. If you're not merciful, if you're not on the road to increasing in mercifulness, you are not a Christian. And if Christ is changing you and the Spirit of God lives in you, then you will become increasingly merciful. You will see suffering. There will be a gut response of compassion. And you will learn to do what you need to do in the way that you can do it. It's obedience. Our mercy bears out the truth that Jesus has made us new. And the mercy of Jesus will finally and fully be manifested to us when he welcomes us into his eternal kingdom. This is future mercy. You're going to stand before Jesus. You know that, right? Every single word we utter is being written down. Every single thing that we are doing is being put into his book. And there will be times when we saw suffering, there was no movement in our hearts, and we did not do anything, and that will burn like wood, hay, and stubble before Jesus. But there will be times, because the gospel's doing this in you and I, Christian brother and sister, that when you see suffering, and there's a gut response, there ought to be one, because the gospel's producing that, and you do something to relieve the suffering, whatever's in your power, regardless of the cost to you, refusing to limit what you're doing, when you move, there will be gold, there will be silver, that will endure, there will be rewards for you, and you will honor and glorify God because of it. In future mercy, God will give us blessings because our mercy bears out his gracious work in us. There is an incredible verse in James that speaks to this. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You ever contemplated that? You ever thought much on that? 
means mercy. It literally means, I'm going to literally translate that, mercy will boast against judgment. That's what that means in the Greek. The Christian who lives out mercy, demonstrating that God has taken his or her sins and misery away through the cross of Christ, will confidently look forward to the day of Jesus, will confidently look forward to standing before him, knowing there is no condemnation in Christ. There will be reward, there will be future mercy as he welcomes you, brother and sister, into into his kingdom. But there's present mercy too. This is one of the great mysterious truths of the Bible. The principle is everywhere. I don't have time to tell you too much of it, but I'm going to give you a few of them. David, who was very much alive when he wrote this, obviously, in 2 Samuel 22, or when he said this and it was written, he said this, with the merciful you show yourself merciful. Now think about that for a moment. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. There are present mercies that God gives us. What did David say in the most comforting psalm in all of the Bible, Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me when? All the days of my life. That's now. Now it's future where he goes, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's got both present mercy and future mercy in mind. Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. Listen, when you are giving generously to those who are suffering and poor, God will give generously to you. Why? Because he knows you're going to give even more. It's not for you to hoard. It's not for you to get bigger homes and nicer cars. It's so that you're a vehicle of his redemptive mercy to those who need it. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Jesus is saying the same thing. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me take you back to those two brothers. Remember the two brothers who were twins? put a petition down the middle and started two competing businesses. 20 years later, after they did that, a car pulls up from out of state. And a man entered one of the the brothers' shops, and when he learned that this was one of the original owners, he said, quote, I must settle an old score. And he explains what it was. 20 years ago, I was out of work. I had absolutely no money. I had not eaten for three days. I was walking down the alley behind your store. I looked in and I saw there a dollar bill on top of the register. Now I had been raised in a Christian home and I had never before in all my life stolen anything, but that morning I was so hungry, I gave in to the temptation. I snuck in and I took that dollar bill. I finally decided 20 years later that if I would ever have peace again over that matter i need to come back and confess that sin and make amends i'm here to do that and that brother now old stood there weeping and took that gentleman from out of state by the arm and said would you come with me and tell that story again to my brother took him next door to the other shop 
where the gentleman told the story again, and this time there were two old men, twin brothers, standing side by side, heads down, weeping. The blessings you forfeit when you withhold mercy will be felt in this life and in the life to come. It is urgent, it is serious, that we understand what Christ is saying. He says there is a power to merciful Christians. And let me end by telling you that. Number four, mercy overcoming. I began this message telling you how merciless the Roman Greco world was. By the way, look at me for a moment. This is a really good principle for you to write down and remember. As your God is whom you worship, so shall you be. That is absolutely true. Whatever you worship, you will not only become like it, you will be enslaved and serve it. And Roman gods were merciless. But Christians, now listen to this. This is amazing. Christians in the first century began to penetrate this merciless world, spreading over all of Rome. The early church was growing, it was exploding, and they taught that there was only one God who came in the flesh to the people that he created to reconcile to himself, and he inaugurated a new kingdom on earth. And if you're going to be one of his kingdom citizens, the early church said you need to obey him. You need to become like him. And they took that radically serious. They began to think and act in new ways to become like Jesus. Now listen to this. Not once did they ever pick it. They never directly opposed Caesar. They never tried to politically overthrow Rome. If they had Facebook, they would not have been putting political rants on there. They didn't do any of that. In fact, what distinguished the early church was not their ideologies. This is her heresy to some of us. It wasn't their ideologies. It wasn't their politics. It was only their love and mercy. That's what distinguished them in action. They rescued. They began to go to the steps of the Roman forums, to those babies that were put there every night, and they began to rescue, cast away babies from the porches of the forums, and they began raising them as their own. Patria potestas was the Roman Latin concept where the father had the power to kill his children or wives. Did you know that the fathers could kill their wives if they wanted to at any moment without any reason? But Christians taught a man to love his wife, to raise his children in Christ, to train them in righteousness the way that Christ does the church. Now during the time of Rome... Rome was sexually depraved. The church modeled purity. The Christians began to care for the poor, the sick, the marginalized, so much so that the Roman people referred to them as, quote, the third race. They called Christians pagans because they wouldn't worship the Roman pantheons of gods. The Christians' love began to weaken Roman imperial authority began to overthrow Roman mercilessness. In fact, the very last pagan 
emperor of Rome. His name was Julian before Constantinople. The very last pagan emperor of Rome understood the power and the love of the early church, and he hated them. I'm going to quote to you from Julian. He wrote this, These irreligious Christians not only feed their own people, but ours also. Welcoming them with their agape, their love, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes, whilst the faithful Roman priests neglect the poor. The hated Galileans, that's what he called Christians, devote themselves to works of charity. Such practice is common among them, and it causes contempt for our gods. He saw the overthrow coming, and it was all because Christians loved and showed mercy. He saw the writing on the wall in the Roman Empire standing strong against political and military opposition could not withstand the love of Jesus seen in the church. You know what the dying words of Julian were? Listen to this. He died in AD 363, and when you translate his words, it says this, you Galileans have conquered. All right, so I want you to listen to this really closely. I'm not going to be much longer. I think this is, might be the most important part. Christian, I'm going to speak to brothers and sisters of mine in Christ. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to speak to you right now and ask you, come on, come to the cross and get saved. There's no other way. God's mercy is there for you. It's a gift. You don't need to earn it. It's free. You just need to ask in faith. But Christian, let Jesus have his way in you. It is the gracious power of the gospel to change you. And be thankful that he has shown you how poor you are in your spirit, that you have no righteousness in yourself, that without him you are utterly, like me, ruined. And let him move you to mourn and to grieve at the sin that is within you, that there's still so much blackness that you have yet to discover, but he will mercifully deal with it. And stay on your knees in humble meekness, realizing Jesus has seen the very worst that is in you, but yet he has lavished his love on you. He chooses to live inside your heart. He is going to powerfully change you. Let him increase your desire for righteousness. Let him get you to the point where you want nothing more than being right with him, being like him, knowing without a doubt that you, that not you, not anyone else can do this work of transformation in you. And only Jesus can empty you and then fill you with righteousness. Does it not follow then that we would be and should be and live radically different than the world? No longer seeing others the way we used to, but seeing people. Listen, this is the mindset now, merciful Christians. You, you see suffering people of the world as deceived by sin. They're duped by Satan, and they are ensnared in the ways of the world. They've got three enemies, the world, their flesh, and Satan. And they have come around in hostility to trap that non-believer who is doing harsh things against you. 
trapping that merciless boss who is overlooking your promotion and demanding you work and forfeit time with your family. Those people who are running you off the road because they're so, such a hurry to go nowhere. Listen, the response must be mercy. They're trapped. And there's got to be a drive in you. There's got to be a drive in me that then turns to prayer and instant forgiveness and coming alongside and giving them the gospel of hope. This is how you could become like Christ and get free of the world and your flesh and the devil. See, this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving us new eyes in the beatitude. And all the beatitudes, you're getting new eyes, I'm getting new eyes. And we see ourselves and we see people in an entirely radically new way. And in this beatitude, our response must be mercy. Blessed, divinely, joyful, and satisfied is that word. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy today and in the future. Amen.